Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. Every text I teach is chosen for the edification of the saints. James taught us how to battle sin. Philippians taught us of the joy we can have in Christ. Galatians taught us already to run from legalism. But we do need to learn as we are coming from all different backgrounds and all different groups. We do need to learn what specifically the Word of God is teaching us about the proper function of a church. As God is bringing together different individuals, we need to learn how to function as a church. And Paul's letters to Timothy specifically offer us that help. Last year, I told you about the website that cataloged what they called the best church bulletin bloopers. I still crack up over this. These are sentences that appeared in church bulletins, said to be true. Here are just a few of them. Bertha Belch, a missionary from Africa, will be speaking tonight at Calvary Methodist. Come here, Bertha Belch, all the way from Africa. Announcement in a church bulletin for a national prayer and fasting conference. The cost for attending the fasting and prayer conference includes meals. The sermon this morning, Jesus walks on water. The sermon tonight, searching for Jesus. This one's not good. Our youth basketball team is back in action Wednesday at 8 p.m. in the recreation hall. Come out and watch us kill Christ the King. Ladies, do not forget the rummage sale. It's a chance to get rid of those things we are not worth keeping around your house. Don't forget your husbands. The peacemaking meeting that was scheduled for today has been canceled due to a conflict. Remember in prayer, the many that are sick of our community. (laughs) Smile at someone who is hard to love. Say hell, I think they meant hello, hell to someone who doesn't care much about you. Barbara remains in the hospital and needs blood donors for more transfusions. She's also having trouble sleeping and request tapes of Pastor Jack's sermons. Not so funny. Irving Benson, this one kills me. This one really does. Irving Benson and Jesse Carter were married on October 24th in the church. So ends a friendship that began in their school days. This evening at 7 p.m., there'll be a hymn sing in the park. Cross from the church, bring a blanket, and come prepared to sin. (laughs) Or this one's just rude. Weight Watchers will meet at 7 p.m. at the First Presbyterian Church. Please use the large double door (laughs) at the side entrance. Not appropriate. Sometimes the situations in church are funny. We've had our share. Some of you have seen me with suction cup arrows on top of my bald head. There's actually pictures floating around to prove it. But sometimes you're in a church where there's real problems, real hard situations. 
And then what do you do then? What do you do when you go to a church when there's a battle for truth, when there's doctrinal problems, when there's a serious battle for truth going on? What do you do when the very gospel of Jesus Christ is being challenged? Because if the history of the church in 2,000 years has taught us anything, there's going to be struggles. There will be battles that must be fought and won. And Paul put down for us some of the most important words that we could ever read for life together in the body of Christ. Would you join me this morning in 1 Timothy 1? The Apostle Paul is writing to young Timothy. And he says later on in chapters 3, verses 14 and 15, he says, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write, here's your purpose statement, so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Very important statement. That tells us that if we want to know how to conduct ourselves here in this place, in this time, we need to be about the business of studying 1 Timothy. The letter of 1 Timothy tells us how to conduct ourselves in the church because we've been entrusted with a very important message, the most important message ever written down, recorded for man, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 of 1 Timothy talks about the kind of teaching that we should listen to. So let's take a look at what Paul had to say. He starts in chapter 1 right away by saying this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, about five years before this, just about five years before this, Paul had warned the elders of the church of Ephesus in Acts 20, a very important warning. Some of you know this warning that he wrote. He said this in Acts 20 to them. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Then what happened? Well, we know that Paul was arrested. And once he made his way to Rome, he was chained to those Roman soldiers. And we saw this in our study of the book of Philippians. Paul had been released. Paul had returned to Ephesus and discovered that while he was away, Ephesus had problems. Ephesus had faced a storm of false doctrine coming into the church because his prediction in Acts chapter 20 had come true, perfectly true. And the more I study the book of 1 Timothy, the more I look at 1 Timothy, the more I believe it wasn't just outsiders that were the problem. It was specifically the elders in the church that were causing the problem. Some of the leaders in the church had gone astray, and that makes things much, much worse. When Paul was released from Rome, he had gone there. He dealt personally with the leaders that were causing trouble. When Paul had to leave Ephesus again, he left Timothy there. Paul hoped to return to Ephesus, but this letter was written in the meantime, written probably from somewhere in Macedonia. It is the early 60s AD, probably around 62 or 63 AD, and it was only just a few years since his beautiful letter to the Ephesians had been written. But the church in Ephesus had fallen that far, that fast 
Churches can fall quick. And with this letter in hand, Timothy would now have written proof that he had the authority of the Apostle Paul behind him. This is some of the reason why when we look at these first few verses here, we see this firm tone in the text. It's a very firm tone. Paul's putting the hammer down. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Ananias was told this message about Paul in Acts 9.15 by the Lord. He was told... He is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So what is Paul doing in 1 Timothy 1? It says, the God of heaven and earth chose me to be an apostle. And Paul refers to the Father as God our Savior in verse 1. Why does he say it like that? Well, because salvation starts with the Father. And he says, the Christ of glory called and commissioned Paul as his messenger. See, Paul didn't wake up one day and say, you know what? I think I want to be an apostle. I got a great idea. I'm going to do this. No, he was chosen by God, commissioned by God to be his messenger. God entrusted Paul with this position. And Paul describes Christ as our hope because we look to him and we look to his return because in him is eternal life. And he describes Timothy as a true son in the faith. That's beautiful words. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you notice at the end of the verse, what does he do? He puts God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord side by side, meaning this. Paul believed in the deity of Jesus Christ. Paul absolutely believed in the deity of Christ, side by side with God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy, you know this from Scripture, Timothy had ministered with Paul for a number of years. Timothy was by himself now at this point in Ephesus. He was outnumbered. He had problems. He had a lot of problems in Ephesus. He was facing a storm, a false doctrine at Ephesus. And this letter from Paul was like a guiding beacon of light in a dark, dark storm. And Paul encourages him, his true son, in the faith. One of the most painful times of ministry for my family and myself happened in the year of 2006. It hurt my wife and my family and myself deeply. I almost left the ministry because I didn't want to see my family hurt anymore. There's only so much a man can take. There's only so much you can take. The faith of my family, and let me just throw down this marker, the faith of my family in Jesus Christ, our Savior, is more important than my role here in the church. It is biblically more important to me than my role in the church. At the church where I was pastoring, we were growing fast. I mean, very fast. We couldn't keep up. People were driving for an hour or two from all over northern Michigan, northern Wisconsin. It was growing. People were driving to come hear the word of God taught. It was a glorious thing. God was using his word. Lives were absolutely being changed. People were coming to know Jesus Christ. We needed a break. We set out to camp for two weeks in the summer. 
In the last sermon, the very last sermon I preached to that church before this big problem was the importance of unity in the church. Love for one another. I sat there and preached for 50 minutes on love for one another, unity in the church, and love for the work of Jesus Christ. And I remember preaching that message. I remember looking out at the people just as I'm doing now, and I'm wondered to myself, were the people taking this in? Were the people taking this message to heart? Because in every church, there are people who go through the motions, and it drives you nuts, but they're not serious about the scriptures until they run into problems and it's too late. But what we could not know was that we had a Judas amongst us. We had a man in the church, a very capable man, a smart man. He was a very smart person. He knew the scriptures. He knew the word of God. And he would be filling in for me when I was gone. But he had other motives. Pride had filled his heart. He thought he wanted to be a pastor. So an easy way to do it would be to lie about me lie about my family, and create some wild stories the minute I left town. And maybe I was a bit naive in that day. I probably was. I didn't know that an inner craving in a person's heart for attention in the church and pride would lead anyone to destroy a church. I didn't think anybody would be that bold and audacious. He circled our house. They circled our house waiting for us to leave. How wicked is that? Then, and that's deceptive, that is dishonest, then called for a meeting in the church to spread lies and hate. Now, this was the days before cell phones. So by the time we caught wind of it, the damage had been done. The damage had been done. And many of the people in that church, unfortunately, walked away. And let me tell you the most painful part. The testimony of that church for Jesus Christ was hurt for a long, long time. Time. It takes years to recover from something like that. Angie and I stayed there for eight and a half years afterwards. We felt it was the right thing to do. We stayed for eight and a half years just to attempt to rebuild that church for Jesus Christ, but it never, ever shined as bright as it had in the past. And the last I heard, I just heard it a few years ago, someone in Alaska had been impacted by it. That same man had moved on to another church, causing some of the same problems, finally getting someone to let him be pastor, but he destroyed another church for selfish gain. So yes, the teaching of 1 Timothy, it's personal to me. It's personal because the work of Christ is personal to me. I spend my entire life focused on the work of Christ. Let me tell you what I learned. Number one, let me just throw this marker down. If we see in you a prideful, arrogant, selfish spirit, you're going to sit on the bench. You will sit on the bench because the work of Jesus Christ in this church is more important than your pride. Character matters. Integrity matters. A faithful walk with Jesus Christ matters. These are the people who will move up in leadership here. But trust does take time to be earned. Two, I warn you as a church, and you need to heed this warning. A good, strong church can go off track much, much faster than you think. 
This church could go off the rails very fast. It doesn't take much. It just takes a few people committed to sin and pride. It only takes minutes, moments for sin to creep in. So as a church, every one of us needs to heed this warning ahead of time. We don't have problems. I'll get asked afterwards, is there some big problem in the church we should know about? No, but let's keep it that way. But I want you to heed this warning now. I want you to have these truths in your minds now because we as a church need to be proactive and be about building up the work of Christ here and not tearing it down. We need to be a proactive on this ahead of the game before we run into problems. Because you know why? There's too many of us here that have been hurt before. And we have come here out in obedience to the scriptures to come together and worship as the body of Christ because we believe that just maybe this time it could be different that this little body of believers with all of its flaws here in Meadow Lakes could stand together as a church. So don't let sin divide us. Don't let your pride divide us. Don't let sin divide us. If you see problems in the church, how about this? Help fix them. Encourage the ones who are serving. And if you have a critical spirit, if you have a divisive spirit, check yourself at the door. And I'm going to ask you to read Ephesians 4. I'm going to ask you to read the word of God and grow in your faith. Because no one person myself included, no one person is more important than the work that God is doing in this church. Amen? Gossip kills. Grumbling kills. And bad doctrine kills, which is what Paul and Timothy were dealing with. So Paul digs in in verse 3. Here we go. As I urged you, When I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogy, which causes disputes rather than what? Do you see the important statement? Godly edification, which is in faith. Paul left Timothy in Ephesus so he could stop people from teaching false doctrine. Doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. In the context, the false doctrine was a suffocating legalistic teaching of men. Let me tell you what I told the men. Let me tell you what I told the group Wednesday. I say this often. I hate legalism. I hate legalism. I can't stand it. It cheapens the grace of God. It puts families, it puts men under bondage. It weakens the church of Jesus Christ. Now we know specifically the legalistic angle at Ephesus. In chapter 4, these teachers were described as this, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. You know what scares me about 1 Timothy 4.3? You could go into half the churches in this country and see that same thing going on today. It's ridiculous. It was men forcing people to adhere to a strict set of standards before they'd be accepted into the fellowship of believers. You see, legalism teaches that God loves me more when I behave. That God loves me more when I behave. Legalistic men count every penny they give back to God. Let me give you an example. Before I came here, there was a church that was going to hire me as a pastor. And one of the men there was negotiating the salary. 
And he wanted to know how much we would give in order that they could pay me $1,200 a month for full-time work. That's legalism. I'm not opposed to giving. I know what my family gives. We give a lot here. We give a lot. But that's legalism when men start counting every single penny. It's legalism if you sit and say, God ordered me to give 10% and I'm not going to give one more penny. That's legalism. Legalism focuses on outward appearance, making sure that you look good to other people in the church or in the community. You see, you know when you're a legalist, if when you meet other Christians, you're smiling on the outside, but you find yourself judging them on the inside. Legalism is a trap that tempts every single one of us. But the weak believers thinks that this cheap counterfeit of grace is the driving force of the Christian life. Even Charles Spurgeon, this terrified me. I saw this this last week. Charles Spurgeon admitted to struggling with it. Isn't that fascinating? He said this once, talking about his quiet time. He says, I have found in my own spiritual life that the more rules I lay down for myself, the more sins I commit. The habits of regular morning and evening prayer is one which is indispensable to a believer's life. But the prescribing of the length of prayer, got to be 30 minutes. And constrained remembrance of so many persons and subjects may gender under bondage and strangle prayer rather than assist it. See, Spurgeon was saying, everyone should spend time in the Word and everyone should spend time in prayer. But if you're timing yourself, how much time you spend in the Word of God, you're missing the point. See, the more rules you put down, the more you're not walking in God's grace because it's about a relationship, isn't it? It's about a relationship. What would you think if your spouse or your best friend in life sat there and said to you, you know what? I'm going to give you an hour every other week. What would you think? Make Jesus Christ your focus. Make the relationship with Jesus Christ your focus. See, Paul wanted Timothy to end the legalism in the church. He wanted it to be done with once and for all because it keeps people from doing God's work God's way. And nothing can choke the heart and soul of walking with God like legalism. Legalism is like that old story of Hans the tailor. Do you guys remember that story? Because of his reputation, a wealthy man came to see him, to see Hans, and ordered a well-tailored suit. And when the man came to pick it up, it didn't seem to fit right. It didn't just fit exactly how it should. One sleeve was twisted in one direction and another shoulder bulged out on top and then kind of caved in and he pulled and he managed to make his body fit. And when he returned home, someone noticed his odd appearance and asked if Hans had made the suit. And the wealthy man replied that indeed Hans had made that suit. And then the other man said this to him, that is amazing. I knew that Hans was a good tailor, but I had no idea he could make a suit fit so perfectly someone as deformed as you. But that, hear this, that's what we do. We get some idea of what the Christian faith should be like. And then we start pushing people and we start shoving people in that direction into the oddest configurations until they fit perfectly. But friends, that's not life, that's death. That's a wooden legalism that destroys the soul. But do you know what grace is like? Here's a perfect description. Young people, you're going to like this. It's like a roller coaster. It makes us scream in terror and laugh uncontrollably at the same time. 
Because as you're riding on a roller coaster, your trust is not in yourself. You're not thinking, I got this thing nailed as I'm going on that roller coaster. You're thinking, glory to God, someone smart made this thing and I think I'm going to be okay. <laughs> right? Your trust is not in yourself. It's in whoever designed that stupid ride. Your trust is in another. So we're not trying to control others. We're not the one driving the bus and we realize it. And we do not design the twists and turns of lives. I'd like to know what's going to happen to me tomorrow. I have no idea what's going to happen to me tomorrow. I really don't. We just get on board and ride the train. And we laugh as the law of gravity is suspended on the roller coaster of life. We scream because it looks like we're going to shoot off into the air. But grace, what does grace do? See, we smile and we yell through life with our hands in the air. It's terrifying fun living in grace. It's terrifying fun living in God's grace. But like any ride that is worth standing in line for, it's worth coming back to again and again and again and again. See, the ride of grace, the life of grace with God is the only ride that never, ever gets old. The only ride will never outgrow. It's a place where hope and joy are truly found. I always like to tell people that the difference between grace and legalism is like a balloon and that there's two ways to fill a balloon and keep it afloat. If you fill it with air, then what do you got to do to keep that thing afloat? You got to smack it. You got to keep beating on it to keep it up in the air, whacking that balloon. That is legalism. But if you fill that thing with helium, what does it do? It floats on its own and you don't have to smack that thing. And the Christian life is about being filled, controlled by the Spirit of God, not controlled by other men and not controlled by their stupid, blasphemous rules. When Paul was released from Rome the first time, Timothy, he came over from Philippi. And when they met up at Ephesus, Paul told him to stay there, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. They'd already discussed the matter. And Paul was telling Timothy this again, written down from the apostle Paul. Notice the wording that you may charge some. See, there was a problem in the church. So he's saying, you may charge some. The wording carries the idea here of passing along an order from the Apostle Paul. It implies the authority of Paul from this Apostle. Timothy was to pass along this order from Paul when dealing with certain men. Because the Greek construction tells us it was still going on and it absolutely needed to end. It needed to stop. No other doctrine. They were mixing strange doctrines with the teaching of the gospel of Christ. Doctrines based on works, not on grace. Doctrines of a different type is how the Greek reads. So he tells Timothy in verse 4, don't give heed to these fables and endless genealogies. Don't attach yourself to these things because they cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is what? In faith. Godly edification is in faith. The first century church, it's amazing. Everybody wants to be a first century church. And guess what? They had the same problems we do today. They had the same problems. They had the same problems that we have today. They they had made up stories of Old Testament saints and that people liked to focus on back then. That came out of the genealogies of the Old Testament. Stuff that wasn't coming from the scriptures or it was being completely ripped out of context. 
You see, the Jews had a lot of myths, just like the church has a lot of myths. Stories that retold Old Testament history with allegory are explaining the alleged deeper, hidden, secret meaning of the Old Testament. Same garbage that's going on today. And they wanted to dig deeper, but they didn't want to stick with the original text. They didn't want to stick with the words that God wrote down. They even assigned deeper, hidden meanings to events in the Bible or to people in the Bible. See, there's always a danger in every church, in every age, of people who are trying to find something in Scripture, some new teaching that no one else has ever seen before. But didn't God write down what we need to know? See, God wrote down what we need to know for faith and godliness. And when we speculate on the things that God has not revealed to us, it leads us down a blind tunnel where we confuse and conceal God's truth. This stuff isn't coming from God. Neither is the legalistic teachings of men. See, legalists have in their mind what they think the Christian faith should look like. So they push and shove people. They push and shove to make them conform into a wooden legalism that absolutely destroys the soul. Instead, we teach people of what Christ is calling them to be. That's what we're about here. Teaching people what Christ is calling them to be. Not controlling people. I do not seek to control you, nor should any other man. We don't try to control people. We set them free, fully equipped to discern God's will through the word of God. We let people read the book and figure it out by the spirit of God teaching them. This is the way to accomplish God's work, standing on our faith in the word of God. You know, if you read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus, there are 32 references to doctrine, teach, teacher, teaches, and teaching. 32 times. Perhaps maybe Paul was trying to get across a point. See, Paul had an expectation that Christians should come together to study and learn doctrine. It's not to come together to have a feel-good service. It's not to come together to get a 15-minute devotion. It's about doctrine. It's about teaching the Word of God because that's what you need. So if you're looking for a church to give you a 15-minute devotion, there's plenty out there. But we're going to teach doctrine here. His Word is what builds up people because it teaches people about who? Jesus Christ. It's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. He's the one that Israel had been waiting for. The son of David, the one who delivered us from captivity. He is the goal, as we've seen in scripture. He's the goal of the Mosaic law. He is Yahweh in the flesh, the one to establish God's rule and reign, the one who healed the sick, the one who gave sight to the blind. He gave freedom to the prisoners and he proclaimed the good news to the poor. He is the lamb of God who came to take our sins away from us. This is Jesus, the creator who came to earth. He's the beginning of the new creation. He fulfilled the commandments. He reversed the curse. This is Jesus the Christ. And he's not some person that just showed up on history. He was there in the Garden of Eden. He is the Christ promised to Abraham so long ago. The Christ promised to Moses, to David when David was a king. The Christ revealed to Isaiah as the suffering servant. The Christ predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. He is our Lord and our God. He is the Father's Son. He is the Savior. He is the substitute for our sins. And He is more loving and more holy and more wonderfully perfect than we ever thought possible. This is the Christ that Paul spoke of in verse 1 when he says an apostle 
of Jesus Christ by the commandment of our God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the God Paul served when he ordered Timothy in verse 3, teach no other doctrine. And then starting in verse 5, Paul says this. He says, now the purpose of the commandment, key words here in the text. If you want to get the heart of this text, it's right here. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from what? A pure heart. Notice the contrast with the legalism and the outward rules. The purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Paul is telling us that the goal of everything we do when we teach the word of God, the goal of everything is what? Love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. Now, Paul in verse 5 is not talking about the Mosaic law. It's going back to verse 3, that Timothy would charge the people off, off the tracks with their teaching to teach no other doctrine. See, it's love that motivates us. It's to be love, the love of Christ, that motivates us. It is the love that wants God's people to focus on the Christ of the Bible. The source of this love in our hearts is the Spirit of God. What does Romans 5, 5 teach us? It says, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God's love has been implanted in us, but how does it grow? That's the question. How does God's love grow in us? It grows in us when there is a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A pure heart is a heart that has a single purpose in faith, a single purpose in life. And what is that single purpose in life, Christians? It is to glorify Jesus Christ. See, I don't, I don't care necessarily what you do for a living. I mean, I do because I care about you. But your single purpose in life for every single person here is to what? Glorify Jesus Christ. Glorify Christ. A good conscience is one that has been freed from that burden, that guilt of sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this person is walking in that victory. This person is living in that intimate fellowship with Christ. And our love is the product of our life in Christ. It comes to us by the grace of God. This Christian is not giving God mere lip service in the faith, but sincere trust and confidence of the heart telling us that when you are purified by the gospel, it means your life is now fertile soil for the harvest of God's love. If you continue to live your life centered in him, these men had turned aside. They had strayed. They had turned to idle talk. Legalists always turn to idle talk. Legalists always turn to idle talk. Do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. Idle talk, garbage, run. Run away from people like that. They had departed from having a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A good conscience dealt with how you lived. In this case, Paul is applying it specifically in the church. And here it means living without shame in the church. Wouldn't that be a good goal for us all? Living without shame in the church of Jesus Christ. Not just right and wrong with our own thoughts, but without shame in the body of Christ. They once were headed in that direction at Ephesus, but then they turned. They turned as a church and started going a different path. It started with their hearts first. It started with their thinking. Then they turned it in doctrine to lead others astray. 
See, sin blinds people. Sin blinds us all. And so now they wanted, they desired to be teachers of the Mosaic law. They wanted the respect that was given to men who were teaching the Old Testament law. Their minds were clouded by sin and wrong thinking. They were with odds at how they should be living in the church. And because of this, what they taught was absolutely meaningless. What is being taught in a lot of churches today is absolutely meaningless. Paul says they didn't even understand what they were saying nor the things which they affirm. They, like so many today, 2,000 years later, didn't understand the relation of the law to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the Christian life is about Christ. It is not about the laws of Moses. These men were without love. They were legalistic with corrupt motives, corrupt thinking. But when there is sound teaching from God's word rooted in love, the heart and conscience of the believer is led to a sincere faith. God's truth grounded in love purifies his people. God's truth grounded in love purifies his people. But when men are filled with pride, wanting to teach, but not wanting to take the time to understand the scriptures for themselves, what do they do? Paul says they babble with idle words. They sit up there and babble with idle words as if they have great authority, even though they never understand what they're saying. There's so much of this going on today. There's a lot of this going on today. A lot of talking, a lot of chatter coming from pulpits and churches but saying nothing of eternal value. A lot of men out there today looking to be called pastor. I've never seen anything like this until I got to Alaska where so many people are calling themselves pastors but have no idea what they're talking about because a desire to teach is not enough. There must also be an understanding of the word of God. And we have a lot of this meaningless talk in the music that a lot of you are listening to today. Christian music on the radio is horrible. It's horrible. It's bad enough when they teach no doctrine. That's bad enough. Much worse when they teach a lot of false doctrine, but it has a good beat. Singer has no more right to sing a lie than a teacher has to teach a lie. And I would dare say that they are going to be confronted with these very words of James 3.1. My brethren... Not let many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Paul believed that our teaching must be pure, centered on God's truth, because only in his truth can you keep your heart clean, your conscience clear, and your faith in God genuine as you walk with him. So Paul corrects these men in our last bit of text. And he says, starting in verse 8, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murders of fathers and murders of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. See, legalistic men are always trying to lead believers out of the liberty of grace and into the bondage of legalism. They're always trying to get men back into rules. And we all love legalism. See, that's the thing. Every one of us, our flesh loves legalism because it makes us look holy to others. We like to look good in front of others. You know how I know that? You showered today. You brushed your teeth, hopefully, today. 
But legalism tries to do it without the change on the inside, without the change of heart on the inside. It is the path of the immature man in Christ. Legalistic men are immature. Label it that. It is immaturity. Men who do not understand that the law is not for the righteous. It is not for the person today living by faith in Jesus Christ. The law was never intended for the church to live under. It was for the nation of Israel. But it still has a purpose, Paul says. It shows us that holiness of God, that beautiful holiness of God. But we don't use it like a club, like a stick to make people righteous because that never works. No law, no list, no set of rules can ever make anyone better. But what the law can do is reveal how unrighteous people really are. When we first moved to the state of Alaska, one of our friends was the head of the ATF. ATF, if you don't know what it stands for, it's the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. He was the head of their agency for the state. He was the top agent in the state of Alaska. They were headed over to Toke. They were headed over to Toke to make a bust, a drug bust. And they headed out with their black SUVs. And I still don't understand why they use their black SUVs. It's so obvious. You can just watch one TV show and know it's them coming. But they were headed out with their black SUVs, planning to stop in all places, Nathan Glen Allen, for the night so they could make their arrest in Toke at first light. And they decided to check into a motel there, and one of the agents made the mistake of getting out a black light. He went into the bathroom first. The entire room lit up. All the walls, everything was covered with stains. Same with the carpet in the room. The bed had stains. It was gross, but what did it do? It told them they have a real problem. That's what the law does. The law tells us that we have a real problem, but we can't use it to clean up ourselves. My friend and his crew did not think that they should stay there, and they did not think that the black light could clean up that disgusting motel. No black light can clean up a motel in Glen Allen. The black light just showed them their problem, and they went and slept in their trucks. We cannot use the law to clean up our lives. We need the righteousness that can only come from Jesus Christ by faith. So Paul tells us here in verse 8, the law has a purpose. It shows us the filth. And that is what verses 9 and 10 are all about. It's showing us the filth. And Paul lists specifically 14 kinds of people, I should say, who are condemned by the law. The law exposes sin, shows our need for a Savior, shows us that we need Jesus Christ, and was meant to restrain sin by revealing to us the holiness of God. But it cannot save you. You cannot be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. It won't get you there. When a lost sinner believes on Jesus Christ, he is freed from the curse of the law. And now we obey God because we have the Spirit of God living in us, leading us to obedience. Paul centered on the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. And everything he lists here just simply goes back to this. Honor thy father and mother. You shall not kill. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, including sodomites, including fornicators, people who are having sex outside the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. Homosexuality, sodomites, It is the sin for which God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a significant part of the reason for the fall of the Roman Empire. And it is a sin that threatens the very fabric of our civilization today. 
Can a homosexual be forgiven? Absolutely. Their life can be transformed by the grace of God and they can receive new life in Christ. But God's standard remains the same today as it always has. Homosexuality and its lifestyle is a vile degradation of God's intended order between a man and a woman. And thou shalt not steal and kill, including kidnappers here. Kidnapping, it was viewed as one of the worst forms of, of stealing back in that day because the crime of stealing children to be sold into slavery was very, very common back then. And thou shalt not bear false witness. Liars, liars. It's, it's a common sin for many people. Paul includes at the end of verse 10, any other doctrine, any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to Paul's trust. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves sinners, nothing else. Paul had experienced the power of the gospel. He had been entrusted with the ministry of the gospel. And Paul, as you read his words, he was constantly amazed, constantly impressed, constantly just befuddled that God would use him, that God entrusted the gospel of Jesus Christ with Paul. British... Ocean liner, the RMS Lusitania, a fascinating case history and to study. It was struck by a torpedo from a German submarine on May the 7th of 1915, over 100 years ago now. In an effort to minimize the panic, the captain, William Turner, created a false sense of assurance. Soon after they were hit by that torpedo, a female passenger called out, Captain, Captain, what do you wish us to do? And he responded to her, stay right where you are, madame. She's all right. So she followed up by asking, where did you get your information? And the captain responded, from the engine room, madame. But see, the engine room had told him no such thing. It was a lie. This was the message that was told to the passengers to keep them calm to keep them quiet, and it spread fast throughout the ship. With one man testifying later that he heard the words from a passenger that came from the direction of the bridge, shouting, the captain says that the boat will not sink. And so people cheered. They cheered at their own ignorance. People that were attempting to get a place in the lifeboats actually turned back from the lifeboats content that they were safe on board this big old ship. And the captain's words confirmed what the passengers and crew already wanted to believe, that no torpedo could cause this ship to sink. But she sank. And of the 1,959 passengers aboard, 1,198 died believing a lie at sea. It is an utter tragedy when people lie and leaders lie to the people entrusted to their care. But I want you to consider the lies that we are being told today. They tell us that God is not real. They tell us that the safest thing that we can do is ignore the warnings of scripture, that our nation is not sinking into depravity and everything is going to be just fine that together we can build back better and make a beautiful world with no poverty, no sickness, no injustice. It's the lie behind evolution. It's the lie behind much of what we see on our TV screens and online. It's the lie that dominates our culture 
right until we sink. Because this is what people want to believe. They want to believe that they're not accountable to a creator. They want to believe that they can live however they want. But the day of God's judgment upon this decadent nation is coming. See, the postmodern mindset says that there is no truth, that there is no God. And we are being told at every turn, be tolerant, be tolerant. Tolerance says, you must approve of what I do. You must approve of my truth. Love responds by saying there is a God in heaven and his truth is absolutely unchanging and infallible. And so, yes, I will be respectful. I will show the love of Christ even when the sin offends God and man. But I'm not going to condone your sin. Not today, not ever. I will tell you the truth. I will share the gospel of Jesus Christ, my Savior, because I am convinced 100% that the gospel can set you free. Tolerance says, you must allow me to have my way. Love responds and says, I'm going to tell you about God's way. Tolerance is the final virtue of a decadent society. But to be a Christian means that God has spoken in sentences. God has spoken with words that can be understood, written down for us. It's not that hard, is it? It's really not. And it means that I'm probably going to be intolerant. And I'm okay with that. So be it. Because I'm going to stand with Paul, and I'm going to stand on the glorious gospel of our Savior, looking to encourage God's people to live in love with a pure heart from a good conscience and a sincere faith, believing the words of scriptures that tell us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. See, that's the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the power of God living in me, I believe it with every ounce of life in me. So guard your hearts, Christians, guard your minds, keep them pure, live with a pure conscience, a clear conscience. And then as Paul would write in 2 Timothy 2, he says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And may God be glorified in us until he comes. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.